Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the show. I know we don't sing at the beginning of shows, but I just thought I'd be crazy today. Super happy to be in yours. Thanks so, so much for tuning in, downloading this episode. It's a doozy. It's got one of my very close and formidable friends, Mr. Tim Ferris. That's right, Mr. Four Hour Everything. Most recently, Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors. I think he's a five, I think it's five? Five X, number one New York Times selling author. And most recently, one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I think he's got three or four, 300 million downloads. It's such a good episode. We're going to take you back actually to podcast week at Creative Live, which is, yeah, it's a class. You can buy it if you've ever been interested in podcasting. We brought together 19 separate programs from some of the top podcasters in the world. Tim, of course, being one of those. This is the segment that is in that bundle. You don't have to pay for it here. You can get it for free. If you want more of that stuff, of course, go to Creative Live and check it out. But in this episode, we do talk about Tim's podcast and how and why he did it. It's a really cool story arc from going from someone who as, as that New York Times number one best-selling author and would interview people but would just use like little teeny snippets, would interview someone for, for hours or days and just use a couple of lines to he's like, wait a minute, this is way inefficient. What if I made it easy and what would it look like if I could build a podcast that was at the center of my world and how effective and efficient it would be at sharing information from some of these world's top performers that I've spent so much time with. So in this episode, sure, there's all kinds of tactical stuff. We do talk about his podcast, about how he started it, about why, about some of the gear, how what's his publishing schedule and how he thinks about it. But there's also, there's a larger narrative here about doing things that bring you joy, doing it in a way that's easy and leverageable and in, in a sense, it's just smart. So what are you creating now? And how could it be, If it, what, what would it be like if it was easier? How would it be simplified? How would you have more time and energy and vitality to then leverage the stuff that you're making into all sorts of other things? Um, Tim is a master at what I think of is deconstruction. He has the ability, a very, very unique ability to set a goal, deconstruct it into a number of small, very tactical to-do items and then making huge things happen. Of course, he's been on the show. I think this is the third time he's been on the show. So for those of you who are Tim Ferriss fans, you're going to love it. If you are interested in podcasting and the art of podcasting, this show's for you. If you want to find a way to make a living and a life out of the things that you love, this show's for you. We're going to hear how he's turned his book career into a podcast that is now basically powering so many aspects of his life. And we get to find out how, in a way, he's building his network. And I know that, you know, at least one, if not all of those story arcs are going to resonate deeply. And, it, and at the bottom of the day, dollar, at the bottom of the dollar, at the, the end of the day, the bottom dollar is that Tim and I have been good friends for maybe 10 years. And uh, I, I love the conversations that we have. It's just raw and authentic. We get to take a couple of questions, too. That's not something we always get to do on this show. But we did have a live in-studio audience for this one. So there's some some helpful questions to get asked by those folks that were sitting in there with us. So looking forward to, to getting your thoughts. Please give Tim a shout out on social. I know you're going to love this episode. I'm going to get out the way and let you enjoy it. But before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor. New sponsor alert. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. This is different than the regular old creative live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Life's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. 
So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Please give a warm Creative Live welcome for my dear friend and the super awesome podcaster, author, guru, badass himself, Mr. Tim Ferriss in the house. There he is. Yes. That is a lot of clapping. Good morning. Good morning. We also go to the same tailor as you guys can see, the Black T-Shirt Club. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say we have the same barber, but I can't see your hair, Tim. Whoa, it's different not, barber. Not much. <laughs> different barber. Um, good morning. You're hailing from Austin right now. Is that accurate? I am. And that's why I have a, a bedazzled. <laughs> oh, it's bedazzled. It's incredible. I can position my head just so where it looks like I actually have one. Awesome. Uh, well, as I, I don't know if you could hear my intro or not, but um, I gave a little bit of a backstory on, hey, we've been friends for a long time, so this is going to feel really informal. But that's also one of the things that I love about audio um, is it allows, and specifically the way that I think both of our shows are formatted, it allows sort of room to have full, deep answers rather than, um, I've done a lot of TV, Tim also has, and those answers in television are like, how can you get it in six seconds? Yeah, and, and what's your what's the shortest version you can possibly do of a, some particular answer versus real depth? I know Tim's uh, interviews have gone on. I've, I've, what's the longest you've got? Like a couple of hours for sure, right? Oh, four plus hours with people like Kevin Kelly, long. Wow. Or David Hanemeyer Hansen is also over four hours. I'd say the, the, the sweet spot's probably between an hour and a half and two and a half. Yeah, wow. So we're not going to go quite that long today. <laughs> um, but I think just the, the, the ability to have a real connection with your audience, to be in their ears when they're doing something, um, is, is really valuable. Um, but again, I'd like to go back to the beginning because uh, everything has an arc. And we could talk about your celebrated podcast now with how many million downloads you got? Uh, more than 300 million. It's probably somewhere between 300 and 400 million. Okay, that's a lot. Um, but what we want to do is I want to go back to the beginning because I think for there are folks in the audience who are in the in-studio audience here today. Welcome all of you. And then there's folks at home. Thousands are tuned in from all over the world. And I think there's a range of, of um, we, what we need to identify with folks who have a podcast and they want to make it better. You go from, say, 2 to 10. And there's people who are, who are wanting to go from 0 to 1 who want to start something. So we're going to bounce back and forth in service of both those audiences today. And to do that, I think we should go back to the beginning of your show. And I'm going to reveal, I'm going to share something very vulnerable here, which is I remember getting a call from you and it was like, Hey bud, I like your show. It's, it's been fun to be on your show a couple times, but you know, I've been doing these books and these books, man, I have like a lot of research and then only a little bit of that information makes its way into the book. And I just said to myself one day, what it would be if, if it was easy. And uh, so I'm going to start a testing out. I think you, you were very clear about it. This is an experiment. But I wanted to know if I could interview you for, for an hour or something uh, and, and see if the podcast was going or it could, could get going. And uh, so we did that. We sat down and that was, I don't know how many years ago now, but please walk us through what the original sort of context was for starting a podcast, the why you started it, and then the how you got it off the ground. Sure. The first real exposure I had to podcasts was during the launch of the four hour chef. And for each book launch, I'd say in the preceding six months, I look for a neglected or underpriced channel that is growing very quickly for the four hour work week. That was blogs, web logs, which were increasing in importance. And along with radio specifically NPR seemed to move a lot of books. When the four hour chef came around, podcasting seemed to be 
a medium that was not being used by authors launching books whatsoever. And nonetheless, or I should say, despite that, was moving a lot of copies of books when people happened to chance across them. So I really focused on podcasts for the launch and was on Nerdist, Mark Marin, WTF, was also on Joe Rogan. And the effect was incredible. It was really, really beyond all expectations. And I had fun. As you noted, I didn't have to censor myself. I didn't have to give a 10-second sound bite that required two hours of makeup. I mean, look at me. What makeup do I need? <laughs> I have nothing to put makeup on. But nonetheless, would show up at 5 a.m. for these morning TV shows, which have their place, but wouldn't register in book sales whatsoever. And after the launch, after the four-hour chef, I was completely fatigued and battle-weary and worn out by yet another 700-page book project, multi-year project, where iteration is really hard. You put together this finished product, you publish it, you hope you get it right, and any type of modification is really involved. So I thought to myself, what type of creative project could I pursue more? What type of experiment could I do where I would have 100% creative control more or less 100% distribution control. And that would also be very lightweight and allow me to test many things quickly. And podcasting is what I came up with. So I asked myself, really, what would it look like or what could it look like if I were on the other side of the table instead of being interviewed, if I were doing the interviewing, which I do anyway for the books, like you mentioned, yeah. and instead of sharing 5% of the conversations in text format, sharing the entire conversations. And in my mind, I wanted to have a graceful exit, so I committed to myself, and then I think I also mentioned this in episodes one and two, doing six episodes. And I would assess then, after six episodes, whether I wanted to continue or not, but that would give me the expectation up front with listeners that this might be a limited run, <laughs> a season a season one. This was before, I think, people were doing what they called seasons of podcasts, but you could certainly approach it that way. And the objective with the podcasts, which is the objective with many things that I've done, even if you look back at, say, investing in startups 2007, 2008 when I started, it was running an experiment where I could really focus on developing relationships and skills that would persist and be valuable, that would transfer from one project to the next to the next, even if that initial project failed by any outside measurement. So that's how it started. And, and it was didn't have a name, didn't have a monetization strategy, uh, did not even know how to list a podcast as far as RSS and so on, so that it would be automatically distributed. I knew nothing coming into it from from the business or production standpoint of audio. Well, th times have changed a little bit because there's a lot more infrastructure. There are entire platforms like Anchor and whatnot. We can, we can go into that a little bit later. But I, what I think what strikes me in listening to that is that you sort of, if you wait till you're ready, you're never going to start. And even from someone who's, you know, one of the master uh, podcasters of all time, he had that same approach. And I think um, maybe we can shift gears and like, so how did you get your first couple guests and describe, you know, what that was like? Because I think the, for the folks at home right now, they're going, wow, like, you know, and my friend circle is really small. I don't have, you know, Richard Branson is not a good buddy of mine. So who who's going to pay attention if I start at the beginning? And uh, and I don't even know, you know, what gear to use. So how did you go from doing nothing to doing something? Well, there are so many variables in the beginning. If you are a beginner in podcasting, I would encourage you to control as many as possible. So you might not have a large friend Rolodex. But who says you even have to publish your first few podcasts you record? Do some dress rehearsals. And for me, it took the form of interviewing a handful of very close friends, Kevin Rose, yourself, and a few others, so that at least that piece of the puzzle was not intimidating to me. One thing that people could do, and this is something that I've seen work very, very effectively, is if you want to interview someone who is above your pay grade, so to speak, 
you can find a publication, whether that's a Forbes as a contributor or perhaps a regional magazine, could be any number of newspapers, where you can do an interview on behalf of that media outlet and they get the text, but you agree with them in advance that you can use the audio, the full audio for a podcast. There are ways to borrow credibility. And I mean, you and I have similar war stories along these lines, tons of them. Yeah. And I think you put it really well, where if you wait until you're perfectly ready, you're never going to do it. You're never going to get started. So true. And I mean, my, Naval Ravikant, another friend of mine who's been on the podcast, said something along the lines of, you know, if I, if I always did the job I was qualified for, I'd still be pushing a broom somewhere. <laughs> and he's one of the most successful tech investors in the world at this point. Okay, so there's this this concept of just starting and. Uh, one of the things that I also encourage people who don't want to get your take on this is do what you can with what you have. To me, that's a better way of starting than I need to go out and buy this. This is I find this is very useful for procrastinating. Well, I don't have the right mic. Hey, I need some new headphones. And if I just go to work on my other job and save up, then I can buy those Sennheiser headphones and then I can buy the recording thing versus I think most of us have a phone. And that phone uh, has a, the ability to record audio. And I would encourage you to think about just using that to start with and look you maybe do six or ten of those and you find out that you love this then you can start investing how what was your particular experience and tell us what your setup was like at the very beginning well i set up at the very beginning it was actually this mic that i'm holding right here which is an audio tech uh, audio technica atr 2100 which is a usb mic costs perhaps fifty dollars and it you is sound great, plug- by the way. Thank you. <laughs> it 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 really punches above its weight class, and I could use something called Ecamm Call Recorder, which allows me to record both audio and video if I so choose, which I don't do very often. So the total cost going into it would be a hundred dollars. Wow, that's it. Wow. And I would also suggest to people that sometimes doing the podcast interviews via phone or via Skype is advantageous in the beginning. It's much more complicated in person from a gear standpoint, unless you're using a phone. You could just use a phone. But if you want to get distracted, and you probably will get distracted by the many other options, there are more things, perhaps counterintuitively, that can go wrong in person. Yeah. And you will be trying to maintain eye contact and keep the person comfortable, which will prevent you from doing things like taking notes, which you can do very easily when it's audio only via something like Skype. And you can have references in front of you. You can have questions in front of you. It simplifies things quite dramatically. I think that's a really counterintuitive uh, way of thinking. I think everyone like, okay, cool. I'm, and oh, I can't have them over because uh, – they're going to come to my house and my house is a mess or I have a really small apartment. It's not going to be cool. Like again, maybe Skype, like Tim, you know, you just put some steer horns on the wall behind you and you just get after it. Um, That's right. But I do like the simplification concept of it. I think my, we started doing something a little bit different. It's just me and a couch. And uh, I filmed it because I thought it was another distribution platform. So, you know, it was audio and video. And today it's it's still um, the Chase Jarvis Live show is both. Uh, what about you? I know you've experimented with audio and video. And I've seen you, you know, sort of ebb in, in and out. Uh, where, where you currently fall on that spectrum? And now that you're a master and, and you're, we're not just about simplifying the process, where do you fall on, the, on the, that spectrum? spectrum? I'm still mostly an audio guy. I have recorded some video actually in this tiny little apartment in downtown Austin. So you don't need much, but it's not my native element. Yeah. And video adds a layer of complexity and cost and production time for someone who's just getting started, or even for me, I have quite a bit of television experience. I know how to vet people, and it's still very involved. If you want to do live switching and so on, it's yeah. it's a whole separate skill set. It's a basket of many skill sets. So I, I defer to audio in general. And there are people also who love video, 
say like Joe Rogan, yeah. who do a spectacular job. And with Elon Musk, if, right? If you view yourself <laughs> in any way competitive with people who love something that you do not love doing, and I don't, I don't. We can we can talk about competition because I generally don't think about it. Yeah. But they are always going to be better at that given skill. Yeah. And in my case, or I should say in my experience, when I look at people who quit after three or four podcast episodes, and there are something like 550,000 podcasts on iTunes alone right now, I think there are 30,000 new podcasts going up every week. And the number I heard actually yesterday was there are fewer than 500 that have a hundred thousand or more downloads per episode. Wow. So the elephant graveyard of three episode podcasts <laughs> is the vast majority. And then that begets the question, why do these folks quit? And I think it is in part because they try to get fancy in the beginning. They want to be this American life, which not coincidentally has a, thank you credits that lasts about three minutes with yeah. 75 names. It's very, very, very hard to do. So I looked at the formats that would require the least work. And those were WTF, Rogan, long format conversations, minimal editing. And I knew that if I didn't keep the format simple in the beginning that I would quit. I also forced myself to keep it simple, and I don't recommend this for everybody, but I did all of my own audio editing for the first 20 to 30 episodes was that using GarageBand, yeah. which I would say was a mistake at the time, <laughs> or it, it wasn't a mistake. I don't, I don't regret doing it, but the software was not sufficient for the size of files that this ended up creating. Um, so what do you... That, Let's let's just dive into that just for a second. So for the people, you, you named your mic the Z twenty four eight K something ATR twenty one hundred ATR twenty one hundred. That's this fifty dollar mic. And then uh, so you started out with GarageBand that had a hard time with these bigger longer files. So w what do you currently use? And uh, tell us what how long it took you to edit in the beginning. And now now what is your program? Well, I like to be able to do all of the jobs associated with any project that I'm working on. And that sounds strange, perhaps. I think you're pretty good at this and have done this with a lot of what you've done. Yeah. Maybe not everything. But it gives me a level of confidence and familiarity so that I can then ask for what I need and know what is hard and what is not. Yeah. So I do not do any of my own editing anymore. I have a team on Slack or that is coordinated via Slack. They're all contractors. And my flow, just to go through it because it works really well, and a lot of folks with podcasts that are approaching the size of mine or even much smaller have teams of 10, 20 people. I have two full-time employees for everything that I do, and that's it. So here's what it looks like. I record my interview. Let's just say I'm using the ATR2100 and Ecamm call recorder on Skype, which is what I used to record Doris Kearns Goodwin recently, okay. a Pulitzer Prize winning author. I then export that with split tracks. So I get two uh, high fidelity uh, .mov files. Okay. Those immediately go into Dropbox in a folder under her name, which is within a podcast folder. Uh, then I record separately an intro, which is one to two and a half minutes long, based on any number of things that I might have written down during the conversation. Because keep in mind, we're not doing video when I record, so I have lots of flexibility. Any types of edit notes, bathroom breaks, coughs, whatever it might be, I note those. Uh, and I create an Evernote file. So the Evernote file at the top has the guest name podcast, then headlines, a handful of prospective headlines that my team will test or you could test or I could test on social and so on. Then I have audio file links to the Dropbox, edit notes, 
So I indicate what needs to be changed or what should be looked out for. If there were any flubs in the intro, for, for, for example. And then blog post. And that's where I would add any assets or notes, requests the guests might have had for things they want us to point traffic to. And in advance, that guest would have signed a guest release. We can talk about why this is important. Uh, I've signed a lot for you guys. <laughs> so, so you have to sign a get. They sign a guest release via hello sign. They do not have to print something out and deal with all that headache. They also send preferred headshots or photographs that they own rights to or with photographer credit, also something you could talk about, very important. And preferred bio of 150 words or less, plus preferred, say, website and one or two social. So we have all of this before we ever record. And I have canceled interviews because I've not received those materials in advance. Okay, so I have a link to Evernote. I put it into Slack, and I say, take it away, boys. Wow. And that's it. That's the last time I touch it. And what happens from there, uh, why don't you just walk through that just on, on your end and, and give us the 30-second version of how the rest of that process looks. The rest of the process is largely out of my hands, uh, but currently I have no more than two sponsors per episode. Those sponsor reads are not live sponsor reads, and I can talk about why that actually gets better results. Also creates a hell of a lot less work and guesswork for me. Those are in a separate sponsorship reads folder and get dropped in by the editor. They use whichever software they use. I don't actually even know what they use. And you can get that type of editing done given that it's not a highly produced yeah. show. It's a conversation where you're taking out the coughs and bathroom breaks and managing levels so that each side is audible. There's not much done. And that can be done for maximum a few hundred bucks. You could probably get someone to do it for 50 to 100 bucks. Wow. If you listen to the episode, the intro theme music, you have sponsorships, introduction, some type of transition sound effect, interview, and then theme music out the back, and two sponsor reads, and that's the end of episode. The format is very simple. Uh, so keep the format as stupidly simple as possible. Do not get fancy. As Morgan Spurlock once said to me, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken. <laughs> awesome. I think that's a really helpful arc. I think it, for those folks that are listening at home, that workflow, it, it aligns with the workflow that I have and, and so many other, the podcasts that I've been on, like the signing documents up front, all that stuff is really standard. So I don't want you to think that you're making a big ask for your future guest. If, um, if, you know, modeling off things that are already done in the industry is, I think it, it's helpful just you should know that that's, that's pretty standard stuff. So uh, I think we've talked a lot about like going from zero to one and how you get started and, and who your first guests were and whatnot. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go back to the in-studio audience right here for just a second. If you've got a question, formulate it now. But before I do, um, is there anything that, like what were failures that you had in the beginning? What went wrong? Unnecessarily thinking that in-person is better than doing something remote. It's a lot easier and I think a lot cleaner in the beginning to do something remotely so you can refer to your notes. If you forget something, you can say Google it on your phone. That's a pro tip. Do not clickety-clack the keyboard. <laughs> so ha have your phone ready. Uh, there are so many little things that can cause problems. In those circumstances, make sure you and your guest turn off all applications that will auto-update in the background. Ding, so ding, that could, ding, ding. I'm sorry about yeah, that. <laughs> turn off all your notifications in settings and say Slack, Evernote, Dropbox, turn all of those off. And I, on the macro level, I would say that not having enough redundancy in the system. So always have an extra USB cable. Always have extra XLR cables if you're using regular stage mics. So if people are wondering what I use in person, it's, it's very simple. It is an 
an SM58 stage mic, generally. It's the kind of mic you would see comedians use. XLR cable connected to a uh, Zoom H6 recording device. That's it. It's and that, in a backpack. Yeah, and fits in a backpack. You just, like, what's the Zoom is like 400 bucks or something like that. And that other stage mic is a little bit fancier, but generally it all fits in a little teeny package and you can, you're mobile with that, right? Everything fits in my backpack. Got it. And in a case like that, the only real disaster I had with equipment was a faulty XLR cable. And one of the things I do not do, which is industry standard, is wearing headphones when I'm recording. I don't like to do that because for people who do not do a lot of media, it can sometimes be off-putting and they react differently. So I'll do a sound check beforehand, which you definitely want to do, and then I'll take out the headphones, but I couldn't hear the cable failing. That was a bad day. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Uh, Other mistakes that I've seen, uh, I, I was able to avoid a lot of mistakes because I talked to people who had made a lot of mistakes. Like me. One of the more, <laughs> yeah, like Chase. <laughs> so one of the mistakes I avoided was thinking about monetization too early. This is, a, this is one of the ways that novice podcasters get very distracted and forget about the most important piece of the puzzle from my perspective, which is being unique, which is being different you are not going to be one of those top 500 podcasts by being 10% better than something that already exists. I can't have to be different. Yeah. As just a lifelong creator, I cannot emphasize Tim's point here enough. Like your, your goal should be to be different, not better, whether that's in subject matter or your delivery or your guests or your style, how can you get great at your craft? Of course, it's not like, Different doesn't replace being um, able to record podcasts and do the essentials. That's sort of the get in the door fee. And you know what Tim's talking about, like what is your unique angle? And by unique, it doesn't you don't have to have lived a, a, a tortured childhood and you know you don't have to have the whole world against you to break through. But what is the thing that you do that's different or what's your take on the world? You can't can't overstate that because that's that's how you're gonna find an audience. I think ultimately and tell me if you agree with this, Tim, I think the in the particular lies the universal. So if you and a handful of your friends or peers or in your industry have a problem that you're facing, uh, something that you're trying to create or build, um, there's some drama around it, there's a, a an unknown set of information that you're trying to extract or explore together, those are things. If if you and your 10 friends have that problem, the reality is that there's a million people who share that in the particular lies of the universal. So what is is the thing that you care about? And then can you help find and connect with that tribe? What what would you add to that, Tim? What did I leave out? I, I I would just recommend a few related resources. So there's an essay written by Kevin Kelly on kk.org called 1,000 True Fans. Read that. No matter how weird or niche you think your interests are, chances are every single one of them corresponds to a million people. Number two, I would recommend a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy, which really touches on eliminating your focus or even the concept of competition. If you create something that is fundamentally different, you can remove the need to think about competition. And... I would also say, as some very specific recommendations, don't pigeonhole yourself necessarily with a really overly specific podcast name, mm-hmm. but I would suggest pigeon, pigeonholing yourself in the beginning with a very specific focus. That's- and if you're not sure how to make it different, make it more specific. So let's say you begin with, and this applies to blogs, this applies to writing, This applies to a magazine column. It applies to all of this. Uh, If you are looking to create in some fashion, let's just say content in this case, maybe you start with fintech startups in Omaha. That's your podcast. It's financial technology startups, early stage startups in Omaha, Nebraska. And that could be a popular podcast. And it could have a decent and certainly well-defined audience. And then you expand that to maybe it is regional, early stage fintech startups 
and over time, but the name of the podcast is, you know, money on my mind or whatever, you come up with something that's really broad. And over time, as you actually develop the chops to earn and deserve a large audience, which no one really deserves in the beginning, unless you have some illustrious radio career that you're leaning on. Once you actually are ready for the major leagues, then you end up on a national stage talking about early stage startups in general across the country and you have masters of scale or something like that, uh, which is, which is, uh, Reed hosted by Reed Hoffman. Yeah. But if you try to boil the ocean at once, you're going to be underqualified for the type of people you're going to be compared to. So go niche enough that you have domain expertise or unique access could be interviewing homeless people in your hometown. I mean, it, it, it really could be that specific. If you are really fucking good, you, you, will, you will find people who will take notice. And as I was told really early on when I was doing these 13, 15-page blog posts, this is before the 4-Hour Workweek came out, so I did not have a large audience. Just like everybody else, I started with zero readers and zero listeners. Uh, I had someone at Google say to me, actually, I think it was Matt Cutts, who said the best, the uh, good content is the best SEO. I had all these other friends who were focusing on search engine optimizing the hell out of all their stuff, but they weren't putting the time into good pieces. And he said, just focus on the good pieces. Like, good content is the best SEO. And that is true for podcasting as well. Beautiful. All right, we're going to take a second here and go to the in studio audience. Throw your hand in the air. Like you just don't care if you got a question. There we go, right in the front. Thanks for passing the mic. Tell us who you are and uh, where, where you came in from today, and then go ahead and fire off your question. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Eric Cloward. I came up from Portland, so we came up last night. Um, and first off, I want to say thank you, Tim, because you are the reason that I actually have a podcast. Uh, a couple of years ago, you did a podcast about William Irvine's book, The Art of Stoic Joy. Oh, nice. And I remember, I remember catching that and going, Stoic Joy, what the... It really it kind of confused me. I'm like, okay, I got to get that book. So I bought the book, read it, was like, wow, this is really cool. Some of it stuck, some of it didn't. And then um, reread it again last year, listened to the audiobook, and was like, oh, I need to apply these things a little bit more. And so at the beginning of this year, I was like, oh, you know what? I want to start a podcast. Let me just practice. Because I kept psyching myself out and doing it, so... Like you said, I recorded on the phone, posted it, and basically it was about Stoic philosophy. It's called the Stoic Coffee Break. <clears throat> and just under, just over 80,000 downloads now, so it's, it's kind of cool. Um, but I guess my question for you is, because I've focused my title on Stoic philosophy, and it's called the Stoic Coffee Break, is that pigeonholed too much for a title? I mean, because for me, it was just talking about Stoic philosophy. It was talking about these ideas. Um, I've got 145 episodes that I just, I just finished up one yesterday before we came There's up. more so. than 145 Stoics in the world? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, but I'm averaging about, uh, probably about 1,500 downloads an episode, and it keeps increasing slowly. So I'm wondering if I'm too pigeonholed on that. I mean, I guess, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, this, this is a... Uh this is a difficult one to have an objective answer to. <laughs> since, since you're also talking to a very biased Stoic. party, meaning someone who's fascinated by Stoicism, I'm like, oh my God, you have at least 10,000 episodes. No problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's overly pigeonholed. I think one way maybe to take the temperature on that is how excited you think you can be within what I think is a very broadly defined theme, right? The Stoic Coffee Break. That could be interviewing modern-day figures, people who have popped up in the news who have handled stressful situations unusually well, right? I mean, you could go in any number of different directions. So if you think forward or project forward to episode 300, like 0 to 10, how excited do you think you could be still exploring this. And if the answer is 8, 9, 10, then I'd say keep doing it. I mean, certainly it's broad enough in my mind 
as someone who's had to give many talks on stoicism and come up with different angles, that I don't, I don't think it's in some way handicapping Lee Small. Okay. I think you have a lot of room to maneuver. Yeah, I mean, like the New England Patriots and the Seattle Seahawks, they read yeah. books like Ryan Holiday's book on Stoicism. And and so you, I could see you at some point in episode 200 interviewing Pete Carroll, from the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, talking about the role that Stoicism played in their you know, 2016 Super Bowl win or whatever. So yeah. it, I think the point is if you can see that arc, and, and Tim, what's your take on this? I, I love that there is the potential for an arc. I think that's part of... Um, if something stays the same, there's a there's a beauty in uh, simplicity and and consistency. But there's also your 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 listeners. They want to go on a journey with you over time. You don't have to take them on a journey. I mean, what you might be thinking of this thing you've been working on for two years. They've only heard five episodes. You don't have to traverse the universe in five episodes. In fact, I think that's a mistake. If you are completely burned out on it, your audience is just getting used to it. So, uh, but I do love the idea of an arc and I don't know if how that resonates with you, Tim, you know, do you believe in that? And and if so, what's your arc? That's a good question. Uh, I'm a professional. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think that my arc is really been exploring my own interests and finding different vehicles, whether those are books, the blog, the podcast, for exploring challenges that I have, which are personal, uh, dreams I have that are personal, things that are affecting me in my life that I have not been able to figure out or that I've not been able to find a good resource for. That's it. But think how- That's all I do is scratch, all I do is scratch my own itch. That's it. Because I assume, at least in that case, I know there's a market of one. Yeah, which is a. I'm going to plug. Uh, Seth Godin's got a new book coming out called "This Is Marketing." Uh, I got an early copy. I was just with Seth last week in New York. Incredible book. Talks about making something for a small but viable audience. Like, what's the smallest you can think of? Rather than ever, like 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 what Tim talked about. Everyone wants to be masters of scale podcast overnight. Well, you know, there's a huge team of people who produce that. There's a huge distribution. Reed has millions of followers, massive email list versus like, you know, your stoic philosophy or in this case, what, and I love the personality behind Tim and Tim's quest for knowledge and lifelong learning. Like that's what I'm signed up for. That's what, I mean, we've been friends for 10 years, but I'm like, it was shortly after the four hour work week. Like this is a person who's on a journey that's similar to me. Human performance is interesting and I want to look at the lens of human performance through people who are experimenting in their lives. And this is when Tim was, you know, trying to help people understand that you don't have to be rich to be rich, for example. And that was attractive to me. And then, you know, we've been on this journey together now for 10 years as friends. I like that personal part. That's part of the connection. And it's an emotional connection. It's not a tactical. I mean, sure, there's tactics like I I listen to this because I want to learn ABC. But what I find by and large, and this is true for anything, if you're a creator or an entrepreneur, people will come to know you. That's why vlogging is its basically a sort of a, a new reality television that has a filter of authenticity that other reality television misses. So again, in the particular lies universal. Tim made it for an audience of one, and now he has hundreds of millions of downloads. Thanks for your question, Eric. Do you have a quick follow-up? Um, yeah, I was going to say, that actually has been the biggest thing for me is that since the beginning of the year when I started this is that the personal growth for me from having to take a philosophical idea from Stoic philosophy, process it, dig, you know, not just take the quote and kind of go, here it is. It's like I dig into it and grab that meat and really try to unearth that so that I can share it with other people. And I found that in doing so, my own personal growth has been absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think that's it. So, yeah, so I definitely agree with that. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for that, Eric. Um, Anybody else with a question? We're going to go to the back there, back left. Uh, Yep, put your, yeah, there you go. It's coming to you. Say, stand up if you would. Tell us who you are, where you came in from, and fire off your question. Hi, Claudia Miro from Seattle now. Oh, nice. By way of San Francisco. Um, So, my question for Tim, I've been a fan since 4-Hour Workweek first launched, and it's just... um, incredible to see your journey. I just think the authenticity in which you share your content, I relate on the personal development and life hacking perspective, but also on 
you know, having content that's just meaningful. And I think that speaks first. So anyway, my question is, um, how does your time look now? So how much time do you dedicate to podcasts as, you know, looking at productivity and time management, I guess. Um, but also, yeah, so how does your time, how do you divide your time, I guess, now um, across the things that are really meaningful to you? Because I think that's part of my fear is that this is going to become this behemoth and there's all these other areas of my life. And I just am curious how you manage that. I know you have teams, but I'd be curious to know how your time is these days. Sure. Thank you for the kind words. Also, it's crazy. I love every question is prefaced with a lot of admiration. It's like, <laughs> we got 90 oh. seconds of admiration and a four second question. You've, yeah, they, you've impacted uh, these folks, Tim. Well played. Well, Chase, Chase can tell all of my, my terrible stories and share all my dirty secrets. But in the meantime, I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. Uh, the time, the time split is something that has taken me a bit of time to figure out and actually coming back to early mistakes. And I'm not sure this was a mistake in the sense that I had to feel the pain to search for an alternative, but recording ad hoc, like when I felt like recording and then getting caught behind the eight ball to edit something because, oh my God, I forgot my friend wanted something out in three days and fuck, now I have to sit with GarageBand at like 10 PM and figure this out. Not having a schedule was problematic. So these days, what I do, and this is not what everyone does, but this is what I do, is I will almost always batch recording of podcasts. And the way I tend to do that is I will record on the first Monday and Friday of each month. I almost always reserve phone calls or any type of communication, like what we're doing right now on a Monday, for Mondays and Fridays. And I will then record, say, two podcasts on a given Monday, first Monday of the month, and then two more on that Friday. So I used to do an average of six episodes per month, and I'm now down to four. That's very deliberate, even though it negatively affects my income, per se. Uh, I've, I've decided that once podcasting starts to feel like a job, it's a sign that I need to change how I'm doing it. And I will also, in some cases, for instance, I've spent a lot of the last few months traveling with family. I will block out two weeks and my primary focus is recording podcasts. And then I will have enough episodes so that I can get all of the materials in these Evernote docs I described earlier to my team and then head off. They have the publication schedule, which is now generally every Thursday. And... I don't have to look at it past that point. Uh, it, it, as a total of time, does not require that much because I've figured out the rules and the processes and so on for recruiting, for checking the boxes before I record with someone, before they are scheduled, the amount of time that needs to be blocked out. They get a podcast prep document before we have our call, which makes all the recommendations that uh, I might make, such as turning off, say, Dropbox, Slack, et cetera, turning off notifications, how to change their sound settings. If they need one of these mics, the ATR 2100s, I will have one of them Amazon Prime to them. My assistant will have that done. And keep in mind, I have one full-time assistant and I have one person who helps with editorial scheduling. That's my whole team. So if you think about what we were able to accomplish as a tiny team, it's a bit absurd. Uh, and nonetheless, uh, or I shouldn't say nonetheless, I should say to accomplish that, we have to have very, very clear processes. When does Tim record the podcast? Everyone on my team knows that. And we also have automatic no's. So if people show up like two days before their book comes out and they want to do an interview, it's like, Sorry, man, you can't do that with the New York Times and you can't do that with this either. Like this, this has a lead time and we have an editorial calendar and that's a quality problem to have. Uh, but nonetheless, something that I thought about in advance that I could set policies from the get go that would make it manageable. Super helpful. Thanks. I think this concept of batching is something that, again, early on, you're trying to figure out your own flow and how to be a good interviewer and all that stuff. When you actually sort of create the way that I think about it is you create a machine, you get really good and effective at 
uh, at the process of it. It's because you've got these things in place. Um, one technique that I use is when I land a guest uh, that is someone I'm um, really excited about. I'll build the, uh, a schedule around it. Like I'll ju I just mentioned Seth Godin. All right, cool. We're recording with Seth or whomever in New York. And then we can say, cool, I'm going to be in New York this time. And we'll build a schedule around sort of someone that uh, – that we travel to New York to be with, or for example, someone came here, we'll do the same thing. So this is a really common practice. It's very effective. The batch mentality, I think it just gets like work items in at a similar time. Would you add anything to that, Tim? I would just say that recording remotely also was a huge advantage. It's not the only way, it's just one way. Yeah. But one of the most common questions I get is, how did you land such and such a guest? Some big name. You're you're and taking my you're just stealing my thunder here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. My job. Second, yeah, it is. We're dueling interviewers here. No, go ahead, go ahead, bud. And one is, I I I've been able to get guests that other people have not been able to get by being more flexible and accommodating. They don't have to fly to my studio. I don't have to fly to them. I can communicate with them via Twitter. Say that's actually a great way to get a hold of hard to reach people. About a third of the guests I had in Tribe of Mentors, the last book, came through Twitter DMs because you don't have to exchange contact information otherwise to DM. But you can get in touch with them and ask them what time works for them. And you can throw out, say, Monday and Friday of the first week and see if that flies. But if they can only do it for 15 minutes, in between takes in a movie, great, okay, I'll take 15 minutes. They, if, and very often what will happen is they'll be willing to go longer than that once it gets going. Uh, but don't bank on it. So I've been very, very flexible with how I have booked people. And secondly, I've been willing to play the long game. Jamie Foxx took a year and a half to get on the podcast. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger took between a year and a year and a half. Edward Norton, same thing. And I was never insistent. I was never entitled. It's just like, okay, I'm going to follow up with the manager or the friend of a friend every six months. And eventually, particularly if you look at, in the case of celebrities, you get IMDb Pro and you look at the schedule of movie releases, ask them if they're willing to do media when they're already going to be doing media. In between large projects, it's going to be 10 times harder. It can happen, but it's going to be 10 times harder. Yeah, I think the same is probably true with books and with everything, right? You know someone's got a book coming out. And this is, I think, a way of both serving, you know, we talked about scratching your own itch. I think, you know, Tim mentioned that to me. That's a way to be successful in life, let alone just podcasting. Like when stuff gets hard, and it will, if you're not doing something that you care deeply about, if you're just doing it to monetize or to build an audience or when stuff gets hard, you're going to like, that's going to be a roadblock for you versus if it's something you're deeply passionate about solving, you know, creating access to stoic philosophy, like, because it's something you believe deeply in when stuff gets hard, it's going to be a lot easier for you to push through and to become one of those podcasts for which there's hundreds of episodes instead of one of the ones that there's only three. So what can you do? That's, that's how you should think about your own, but also think about from the guest perspective. If you say, I want you to be on my podcast, so who's that about? That's about you. Versus, I see you've got a new book, a new movie, a new fill in the blank. I've got a small but rabid audience that would love this information. And I think, you know, we could help you move some units or whatever. How can you make it in service of your guest? Fill in the blanks on that one for me, Tim. <laughs> I would add one more thing to the guest recruitment, which is is related. And that is, you don't have to have a huge network to get great guests. You need to know one or a few people who are very, very good at what they do. So let's use the FinTech, early stage FinTech startups in <laughs> Omaha podcast example. I love how we landed on this one. And I yep. love the name, what was it? Money on my mind? We got, Money an, on actual, my mind. Yeah, we got an actual <laughs> podcast here, this is great. So let's just say over the course of three to nine months, which would be the period of time in which I would suggest you focus just on getting good at your craft, no thought on monetizing whatsoever. If you get to the point where you are suddenly interviewing whoever is considered to be the Warren Buffett of 
financial tech investing. That person is almost certainly going to know pe people who are potentially the best at, and I know the best, but some of the best known people in photography, in acting, in fill in the blank, because people who are the best at what they do know other people who are the best at what they do. You do not need to know half the people in Hollywood to get an actor on your podcast at all. You need to know people who are really, really, really good at what they do. And they know, they know other people in different fields who are also the best at what they know. Awesome. All right. I'm going to shift gears here, Tim, and we're going to do the speed round. All right. We're rolling a little show on, short on time and I had some, some ground I want to cover. So my hope would be that you could compress this into a, this is a trick too, by the way, for an interviewer. Um, I want to try and compress this into, uh, like a one to two sentence answer if you can. Um, and these are right. big, these are bigger, bigger questions. So it's going to be a challenge, but that's what we're here for. <clears throat> What is your process for curating guests? Personal interest. What problem or, or dream or neurosis, set of neuroses do I have that I'm currently trying to deal with? And who do I think could help me with that? Awesome. You talked about not monetizing your podcast too early, but at some point you decided to. And in that way, how did you get your first sponsors? Create content that is good enough that they come to you. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but if you go trying to hump the leg of every sponsor out there, you are going to have exactly fuck all for leverage. <laughs> and you're also not going to get the cream of the crop. So create content that is exceptional, and it will attract the people who are willing to pay a premium. And by premium, I'm going to say... There are podcasts out there, including mine, that can charge 50 to $100 CPM. And you can see how that starts to add up. How much time do you spend personally preparing for each interview? Highly variable. Uh, don't don't, don't remark on today's prep. because <laughs> <No>. <laughs> There are some guests who, if you have not done an absurd amount of preparation will shut down in the first five minutes. And you, you have to try to read if they are one of those people or not. But I would say that minimum, I also have at this point trained people to prep for guests the way I would prep for guests. And I've studied, for instance, how people from inside the actor's studio who are doing research for a guest will go to Wikipedia, look for the strangest one or two things in the citations and dig into that to try to find, say, one or two personal interests that interviewers have generally not asked people about. Uh, case in point would be Edward Norton and asking him about surfing for the first 10 minutes of our conversation so that he wouldn't go on autopilot with getting the same 10 questions he always gets about acting. And, uh, the most I would say is like two full days of prep. Wow, that's awesome. And then is there anything that you've done in particular to hone your craft besides uh, what you just referenced with, with uh, finding unusual things about people to get them sort of in their flow? Any, anything else, any, any tricks for, uh, that you've done to practice your own craft and get good at interviewing? Oh, tons. I think about it constantly. I collect questions. If I find questions in an in-flight magazine, if I hear a question, if I'm being interviewed and someone asks me a good question, I will write that down and put it into Evernote. How many and that goes into my rotation. How many questions did you write down today? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Every <laughs> Everyone. Thanks. So, so brilliant and lightning. Um, this is the last one question. Thing, oh, great. Follow-up questions often get the, the gold. So... How did that make you feel? What did you learn from that? These are really important questions that you can use to follow up on just about anything. And then secondly, uh, advice that Cal Fussman gave me, master interviewer, was let the silence do the work. If you ask a question and it's a hard question or there's, the interviewee seems stuck, let it sit for at least five seconds or so to see what comes out of it. Yeah, I'll just reference an earlier part in this conversation. Remember when Tim took a long time to answer a question and he looked off? 
to me, that's gold, especially in the audio world, because that, that creates this sort of hang moment, like what, what's it going to say? And it's clear that there's sort of the answer that follows it is either going to be uh, frightening or thoughtful, or there's going to be some sort of drama on the other side of that. So, so let that linger. And again, I would love to have had twice as much time as we have, or three quarters more time, um, some, some version of more time to be able to have this be a little bit m- emotional, the connection between you and I, but we've, done those podcasts before you can go to each of our shows to get that one today we wanted to be very tactical um is there anything else that you've had that i that that you'd want to add that i haven't asked him about uh, advice to people who are uh, going from zero to one or trying to grow their existing podcast just keep it simple and get started and try a bunch of formats I mean, go record 10 episodes of 30 minutes each and try something different every time and assume that you may not publish any of them. That those are your dress rehearsals. And if you're not willing to do that, maybe you should pick a different game. Beautiful. Let us give a huge, warm thank you, applause for Mr. Tim Ferris. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.